Well, good morning, New City, and thanks for joining us this Sunday. Uh, here's what I know. Whenever we read a book, or for maybe most of you, you're like, I don't have read a book since I was in elementary school. If you watch a movie or a TV show, we always identify with the hero. And they actually make typically make it pretty obvious who the hero is early on, who the villain is early on. Even when uh, silent movies first came out, uh, they would typically have some sort of physical characteristic of the villain so that you would know he was the bad guy. I mean, he maybe he would wear a black top hat, or he would have hand handlebar mustache. Sorry to you hipsters. Um, he might be rubbing his hands together. In fact, sometimes even on the screens, it would say, boo, hiss. So you knew who the bad guys were. Typically, there was something, not just that we didn't like them, but there was typically something physically about them that we would disassociate with. And then in the heroes today, especially in a lot of the superhero movies uh, of these days, the heroes typically look a lot like us. They're just a little bit more attractive and a little bit more in shape. And so you're like, that's, that's me. So we can identify with them. And villains, typically they, they look a little bit unhuman. Maybe they have something in their wardrobe that sets them apart. There's something physically different about them that tells us we don't want to be like them. And so what happens when you're watching a show or a movie, you see this hero and he's backflipping off buildings and he's sliding under so much trucks while they're moving and, and you're like, that's me. Even though every time you get off the couch, your body cracks all over the place. You're like, I can take him out. Let me out him, right? Or, or maybe the hero confronts evil and justice and they speak out with confidence against uh, uh, the things that are not true. Even if everyone's against them and, and you're sitting there and like, you'll never tell your friend that they've got broccoli in their teeth, but you're like, oh, it's me. I'll speak out. Um, I'll, I'll say it, right? We like to identify with the hero. Uh, the, the problem, however, is that in the story of Scripture, as you read throughout uh, the Bible, the Scripture identifies us not as the hero, but as the villain. In fact, the great American theologian finally got it right after years of blaming everyone else for their problems. A few months ago, what did they come out and say? It's me. Hi. I'm the problem, it's me, right? That's Taylor Swift for you. Finally, it was always everyone else's fault. And she's like, no, I'm, I've, got the, I've got the issues. And here, here's the thing. By, by nature and desire, we need to understand uh, that we are the villains. In fact, in, in Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament, it tells us that we are enemies of God. And hear me, it's not because God declared war on us. It's because we declared war on him, and we need him to rescue and save and redeem us. Now, now here's the good news of the story of Scripture, is that um, unlike, unlike stories and movies and in shows, the heroes save the good people, or they save the innocent people. They save the people who are having an injustice against them. In Scripture, we see the hero actually dies for the villains. In Scripture, we see the hero lay down his life for those who do not deserve it. And so uh, right out of the gate, we see in Scripture, we saw it last week. We're going to see it this week as we study Genesis. We are seeing people making wrong decisions. But it's showing us and it's pointing us to the one who will save us from, the, from ourselves. And this story this morning is going to be no different. And so I say that knowing that, knowing that we aren't the hero, knowing that Jesus is the hero, that he redeems us. Um, so even as we read a text today that shows us what I believe all of us are capable of, given the right conditions, the question then becomes for us, what does it look like for us to emulate the, the hero, our hero? Uh, to the best of our knowledge and ability, how can we, uh, we in response to what Christ has done for us live faithful lives? How can we faithfully follow the hero? Or put another way, here's the question for us this morning. What does faithfulness look like? 
What does it look like to be faithful to the one who has redeemed us? What does it look like to actually be faithful in the midst of all that life throws at us? That's what we're looking at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, would you go ahead and open with me to Genesis chapter 4? Or you could use your phone. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home as a gift for us. Or you can just read along with us there this morning. We're in Genesis chapter 4, so it's super easy to find. We'll be on page 3. We've been reading the creation account, how God created. And he's done a lot of stuff. We can't recap everything. But of course, in this series, you can always go online or or watch the podcast if you want to catch up. Uh, Last week, we saw what happened when Adam and Eve went their own way. We see the serpent. We talked about what's up with the talking serpent. We we looked at the curses that God gave to Adam and Eve, how life today is not what it could have been and not what it will be when Jesus returns. And now we turn our attention to their first children to see what happens next. They've been exiled out of the Garden of Eden. Uh, They are facing the difficulties of life. And then it says this in Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. It says, the man was intimate with his wife, Eve, this is Adam and Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. Now, in Hebrew, this would be Cain, but, you know, in English, we say Cain, so we'll do that. Uh, she said, I have, a, have had a male child with the Lord's help. Uh, she also gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now, Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. And so here we see Adam and Eve having their first children. Eve acknowledges that this was a blessing from God. Uh, And so she has a name. She names the first son Cain. She names her second son Abel. And both take part in cultivating and working. Uh, Cain was, if you were to put maybe modern language on it, he was a farmer. Uh, And Abel worked with the animals. Verse 3 then says this. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also presented an offering, some of of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious and he looked despondent. Right, so what we see here is that both Cain and Abel are offering something to the Lord. Now, we don't know where this exactly would have taken place or, or how they meet with the Lord. Again, there's just a lot of details the text is not concerned with revealing to us, but somehow, some way, they do this. Now, Abel presents a good offering. It's the firstborn, and it's the fat portions, which means this was not only his best of the best of the flock that he had, but it's the best part of the body. This is the best part of the meat, the, the portion that would have been, if you could sell it, for example, it would have been the most expensive part. This would actually, later on in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, we would see that this type of offering was extremely generous. He gives the best of the best to the Lord. Now, we're not told why in the text, but Cain's offering uh, is, is seen as less than to the Lord. Now, I would argue it's not because he provided, you know, some, something from the ground or some sort of fruit or vegetable, and that's somehow inferior to animals. I don't think that's what's going on here. It seems that it has to do with Cain, uh, Cain's offering, not his first nor his best. Abel offered his first and his best. Cain just offered some of the produce from the ground. Rather, it appears kind of more like tokenism from Cain, right? On the outside, he looks like he's being faithful. Uh, You could argue he doesn't have to give anything to the Lord. So the fact that he's giving something, well, shouldn't that count for something? But what we see is that his offering doesn't, is not one that requires obedience or rather dependence on God. It seems to be enough to be like, well, I've got enough for myself. I've got some left over. Let me offer it to the Lord instead of what Abel did. Where he said, this is my first. This is my best. I'm going to sacrifice it and see what I have left. And so as we're, as we're looking at this morning, what does faithfulness look like? The first thing we see is, is what it isn't. What we see here is that faithfulness isn't a show. 
Faithfulness is not a show. See, a lot, a lot of things that you and I do in our lives, we can do things that externally impress others, that they look good on the outside, but they are not impressive to the Lord because he sees our heart and our motivation. In fact, if you read the New Testament, many of Jesus' challenges to the contemporaries of his day was their hypocrisy and their public displays of faithfulness. They would do things that were good, but their motivation was to, for everyone else to look at them and to see how holy they were. It wasn't about honoring God and, 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 and sacrificing to him and trusting him. It was about looking good towards other people. Uh, put another way, you can look good and not actually be good. You can do things that look good with your motivation maybe be in the wrong place. Or you might want to impress other people, but God knows our heart. And so you can look good externally, but that does not actually mean you're in a good place. It, it kind of uh, maybe thinks, reminds me of, of marriage. So, so here's an example, right? Maybe you or your spouse is frustrated with you or you have a spouse that's, you're, you're frustrated with your spouse. And sometimes in marriage, your, your spouse is frustrated uh, with you, but you're frustrated back with them because it's like, well, I've done A, B, and C. Like, look at all the nice things, good things in my marriage that I'm doing. Why are they frustrated with me? But the reason why your spouse is frustrated is because it's not that they want you to do A, B, and C. They want you to do maybe X, Y, and Z. So maybe you thinking, well, maybe, I don't know, a general example. Well, I've unloaded, I've done the dishes tonight. They should be happy. But what if your spouse is glad that you did that, but more than anything else, they just want to spend time with you. And so it's easy for us to say, well, I've done this, and so they should be happy when what your spouse actually wants is something else, especially if they've communicated their desire. And so you're frustrated at one another because you think, well, I've done something good, but it's not actually what they wanted. So Cain, and maybe in a vacuum, has done something good. He's offered something to the Lord, but it has not been a sacrifice, and it does not show reverence or dependence on him. We, we see here that just because you do something doesn't actually make, the act in and of itself isn't faithful. It's why in your motivation and what's going on behind the scenes, faithfulness isn't a show. And we continue to read in verse 6, and so here is God's response to their sacrifices. Or he continues in his response. The Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? Remember, he was upset and despondent. Why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? Verse 7, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So, so here, Cain is upset by God's response to his offering. Now, of course, we know Cain's actions are what's at fault here. God's response is not the bad thing. It was Cain's actions that is what caused all of this. And, and God is telling him, listen, I know you're upset, but if you do right, like in the future, if you continue to choose to do the right thing, things will go well for you. But if not, uh, sin is crouching at your door. Now, this is a clear reference, if you were here last week, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we see the battle between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the snake. There is a struggle and hostility between this supernatural uh, serpent-like animal evil behavior and trying to faithfully follow God and doing the right thing. And the illusion that you get here is that it's like a demon or a vicious animal lying in wait to devour. It's, it's a weird translation in English, but if you were to literally translate it in English from Hebrew, it would be sin is a croucher at the door. It is a croucher. It is waiting to attack if you will fall to it. Just like the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, where Adam and Eve were unable to resist the temptation of the serpent, we're seeing these echoes here that its desire is to rule over you. These evil serpent animal-like desires are to rule over you, but you must rule over it. 
You have to make a choice. And so again, as we're talking about what faithfulness looks like this morning, one of the things we do see from this text is that faithfulness is a daily choice. Faithfulness is a daily, it is a uh, continual choice. So this isn't like pray a prayer for Jesus to come into your heart and then you're, you're good and you can do whatever you want for the rest of your life. It's like I, I said the right thing or I, I did the wrong thing when I was like 15 or 20 and so now I'm good. The, 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 the caution we get here is that sin is always in wait. It is always crouching. It wants to overtake you and so you have to resist it. Now, to, to be clear, this is not like a faith by works, like you, you got to do the right thing or else God won't redeem you or rescue you. But rather what this is, is, it is a desire to strive to honor the one who redeemed you. And the point rather here is that simply it's not going to be easy. That if we want to follow the one who redeemed us and express our gratitude and how we live and how we work and how we behave, it's a daily choice that we have to decide daily to do it. It kind of makes me think of this, um, alarm clocks. So some of y'all are like crazy and you set like 15 alarms like every five minutes. Why? I don't know. Because you're struggling to make a decision. Um, I, I hate getting up in the morning. It's like if I could skip three minutes of the day, it's like getting up. Even though it's like after you get out of bed, you're like, you're okay. But I just like, I hate it and I dread it. But when your alarm goes off, you have to make a choice every day. Am I going to hit the snooze button? Or maybe the, more, the, the scarier choice is, am I going to turn it off and just lay here for one more minute? right? That's all I'm going to do. And then 33 minutes later, you're late for work or school and you're freaking out. But it's a thing you have to do daily. Like you, you, most of us, unless you're like superhuman trained or whatever, like you have an alarm clock and when it goes off, you have to decide to get up every day. It is a daily continual choice. This is how scripture presents trying to resist temptation. In fact, even in the New Testament, the apostle Paul writes this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says this, writing to Timothy. He says, but you, man of God, flee from these things. He's talking about evil and temptation in the previous verses and pursue righteousness, a godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you have made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What he's saying to Timothy and to us here is that this is a fight. It is a daily fight that we have to pursue. And so uh, this might be discouraging. I don't know if this is for you. This is for me. It is often discouraging for me in my life how often uh, we or I fall short and sin and do the things that I don't want to do or how I often I am not the person I aspire to be. It is a discouragement to me. Or maybe... Uh, how, of how we wish we honored God and how we might wish we behaved more like Jesus and we fall short. It can be a discouragement for those that are trying to follow Jesus and then we think of all the ways that we do not measure up. Uh, this is why Paul, in a different book in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 7, uh, some of you might be familiar with the passage, he, he talks famously about how he does the things he does not want to do, and the things he does do, he, he hates. Like, he wishes he was not acting and behaving the way that he does. I, personally, for me, the, these last few months, I've spent a lot of time thinking and considering Romans chapter 7, of all the ways I wish, or I, I'm not measuring up, or I'm not what I aspire to be, and it can be discouraging. And so even in that, here's my hope in saying that I hope in maybe in some way in the discouragement you might feel, you might also be encouraged to know that there is no arriving. Uh, there is no day where you're never, never, ever going to be tempted again, where you will always make the, easy, the right choice easily. That will not happen. Now, it is true that we can train ourselves to fight better as we follow Jesus and walk with the Spirit. We can reduce temptation in certain areas of our lives, but it will always be there to some degree. 
these serpent sim-like temptations will always exist, and we have to choose who we are going to follow. We will have to choose. And so uh, we should pursue holiness, and we want to honor God with how we live, but it will never be automatic. It will never be automatic. And we never drift towards faithfulness. We, we, an autopilot doesn't lead us towards faithfulness. It leads to us making our own decisions. And so the questions then become, what do we do when we fail? So, so knowing faithfulness is a daily choice and knowing that we are not Jesus, so sometimes we will make the wrong choice. We will let sin devour or overtake us. What should we do? Well, let's keep reading. Here's what it says next in uh, Genesis chapter four, starting in verse eight. So God's again telling Cain, do the right thing. And then he says this, and then this happens, verse eight. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's guardian? Now, again, questions we don't have the answers to. We're not told how long after the fact or even how he lured Abel into this field to kill him. Um, But he does kill him. And this, again, we're going to see is the first of many sibling sibling rivalries, not only in the book of Genesis, but all of the Hebrew Bible. This this tension between the firstborn and the secondborn is going to play out time and time again. And so he kills Abel in his hatred, anger, and jealousy. He kills Abel, and in his anger with God, he kills one of God's images, one of the people that created in the likeness of God. And his response to God when God asks him about what is going on is he denies responsibility. He attempts to, anyway, hide what he has done. He doesn't want God to find out. And I think just perhaps, just perhaps, we might should see some irony. How in just one chapter, how far it has brought us from wanting to know everything about good and bad, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil or good and bad in Genesis chapter 3. And thus Adam and Eve taking from the tree, right? This desire to know everything to now wanting to act like we know nothing. Right, we see this reversal right away. And so here's what God says. He continues in verse 10. Uh, then he said, this is God speaking, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed and alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood. You have shed. Verse 12, if you work the ground, it will never again give you its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And so in response to what Cain has done, Cain is also cursed. And so his curse, again, is adds to the alienation between the man, the humanity that God has created, uh, and the ground that, that this was introduced in Genesis chapter 3. We saw the curse between Adam and the ground, and now this curse is getting bigger, at least for Cain. And so these punishments, again, as we see in Genesis 3 and here, uh, and as you continue to read, underlying a continual principle that we will see, and that human sin actually in the Old Testament has a bearing on the, on the fertility of the earth. In the original creation story, God created humanity to enjoy the earth's fruit, to be fruitful and multiply and enjoy creation. But sin is now distancing humans, not only from God, but also from God's provision for them. Right, that, that now it's going to be even harder for Cain to find provision. Now, this is even more difficult for Cain because as we saw in the beginning of Genesis 4, he was essentially a farmer. That's how he provided. That's how he worked. And so now he's going to have to find another way to eat and another way to survive because what he's doing now is not, no longer going to work for him. And so here's Cain's response, verse 13, if we keep reading. But Cain answered the Lord, 
My punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. Whoever finds me will kill me. And so on, 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 upon realizing, uh, hearing and realizing the severity of his punishment, of what God is going to do to him, instead of repentance, right, just like Adam and Eve did never, never repented for what they did, at least not initially, um, he also responds essentially with self-pity. He's like, your punishment is too hard for me. Right? He, and of course, I mean, from a human perspective, it makes sense. He fears what is going to happen to him, but he does not show any fear or reverence to God. And he also here does not even show any sorrow. He's just worried about his consequences for his actions. Now, again, another place with questions people have is, who is Cain afraid of? If it's just Adam and Eve and now just him, and, just him if he killed Abel, like, who is he afraid of? A lot of questions here. Is it Adam and Eve? Um, do Adam and Eve have more children right now that the text has not told us about? Um, who are the others, again, he is worried about? Um, is he just saying that in general his family and all future descendants will want to kill him? Uh, and will, will, will know what he did and want to kill him? Are there other people out there that somehow aren't fully human in the way that Adam and Eve are? Uh, the text does not give us these details. It does not tell us who he's actually afraid of, but he is afraid. And for our purposes this morning, again, when we're talking about what does faithfulness look like, here's what we see, another example of what it isn't. And that is faithfulness isn't hiding. Faithfulness is not hiding and running from what you have done. Instead, rather, it's being honest about it. And so again, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what did they do? They covered themselves and they hid from God. They did not want God to know what they did. And, and here, Cain does the same thing. He acts like he does not know. He wants to keep his act from God hidden. But again, just as we saw in Genesis 3 and in Genesis 4 today and many other scriptural accounts, God already knows he already knows. And so hiding does not do anything because he already knows. I think of it like this with our kids. We, we always tell them this, that it will always go better for you if you tell the truth. And if you lie to us, you will always be punished worse. It, it will always go worse for you if you do not tell the truth. And if you don't tell us the truth the first time when we ask, right? You need to be honest with us. Now, it's really funny because our sweet daughter, Finley, I mean, she's so sweet that she, you know, she wants to do the right thing. And so anytime she does something wrong, she just straight up tells, tells us. In fact, there are times where she tells us things she did four months ago that we never would have known. It's like, I was mad. And so you told me to clean up my room. And so I pushed this thing under the dresser. And it's like, no one ever has looked under the dresser. We never would have known. But she's like, she just wants to tell us. She just wants to do the right thing. And I, I, I do think that's a good example for us because here's the thing. I press to remember this morning that, listen, God already knows. He already knows. Uh, this is why often at New City Church, following the sermon, we do confession. Because God always responds to repentance with grace. He already knows. And so he's inviting us to be honest with him so that he can redeem and bring us back into a right relationship with him. And so I just want to say this this morning, that some of you today are, have been struggling with sin and, and you don't want to tell anyone and you're trying to keep it from God and from others. And I just want to let you know, like, you do not have to hide anymore. Faithfulness, again, for us and our perspective, we are never going to be perfect. And so knowing that, that means we should no longer hide. We don't have to pretend like we have it all together. We don't have to pretend like we've never blown it. That God is inviting us. And again, as we read, because we have the benefit of all of scripture, we see God's love and mercy again and again for those who turn to him. We see God again and again, not punish the people the way he said he was going to when they respond. Now, it doesn't mean there not, are not consequences for our actions, but the way that God loves us and cares for us, he is inviting us to tell him when we fall, not hide it. 
And so if you're here today, like, man, I've, I've blown it. I've fallen short. I've done X, Y, and Z, and it is terrible. Listen, you don't have to hide from God who already knows. He wants you to be honest so that he can bring healing to you. But this is not the route Cain goes. Instead, he's upset. And so then he gets punished and banished from where his family is. And then it says this in verse 15. Uh, after Cain's like, well, everyone else is going to kill me when they find out. I'm afraid. It says this in chapter 4, verse 15. Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And so again, lots of details we're not told. We're not told what this mark is or what it looked like. It seems quite clearly that it would be some sort of visible mark so that people would know that, you know, you can't kill him because things would not go well for them. And it's worth pointing this out as well, that Cain does not deserve this. Cain does not deserve any of this. What he deserves is death, and yet God spares him. Not only does he spare him, but he marks him so that no one else can do to him the exact same thing that he did to Abel, that God offers protection, and just like he offered covering and protection from Adam and Eve when they were banned from the garden. That even after they sinned, God cared for Adam and Eve, even though there were consequences, and he cares for Cain, even though there are consequences. And again, we see from God from the very beginning that he is not treating people how they deserve. In fact, he's not even treating people, they didn't even apologize. And he's still giving them mercy. He's still giving them grace. And so uh, Cain is sent out to wander. Now, just a little interesting thing of note here. Typically in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, whenever you go east, things are not going to go well for you. Or going east is a sign of bad things to come or, or just sin or the results of sin. So for example, Adam and Eve are driven east out of the garden once they sin. And now Cain is driven even further east. And Babylon, a lot of the, the, the evil empires that afflicted the Israelites came from the east. So going the east was typically uh, coupled with some sort of punishment. So Cain is sent east. He settles in the land of Nod. We don't know exactly where that was, but it means wandering. He is going to wander. And Cain is also given a consequence. Though, again, his consequence is not at all equal with his crime. He is also at the same time given mercy. Because killing an image bearer of God, killing an idol of God, which is what humans are, is a big deal. And yet he still receives grace. And so I just want to say this. It's striking to me as we read the scriptures. Again, from our vantage point, at least we have the benefit of having all the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, and Jesus to refer to. But it's striking to me that neither Adam nor Eve, Adam and Eve, nor Cain repent. Neither one. They both come, succumb to the evil desires and they hide. And so I asked this just like I asked this last week. I have no idea what the answer is. But what things have been different if he had been honest with God? Would things have been different for Adam and Eve and potentially us if they had been honest with God? I don't know, but again, we see over and over again the character of God throughout the scriptures. Is that he is a God who always responds to repentance with grace. Always. Again, it doesn't mean there's no consequences, but there's always mercy. Jesus is the invisible God in flesh. And what does Jesus do? He calls out sin. He's honest with what it is, but then he goes to the cross to give us what we do not deserve. He always responds to repentance with grace. And so when you continue to read Genesis and the first five books of the Old Testament and the rest of the Hebrew Bible, you see people who actually do do something bad and then they repent and they experience mercy and grace. So Abraham will read his life story. He does this. Uh, Moses does this. Uh, the Israelites do this multiple times, especially 
right after they leave Egypt. They, Moses goes up to the mountain. He's gone for a while. They don't know if he's coming back. So they create a golden calf, even though after all these plagues and now God has rescued them out of Egypt and they deserve death and they repent and God gives them mercy. All, again, all of this is leading up to the one who would not give in to these serpent-like animal evil desires, who instead, instead of succumbing to evil and demonic activity, would overrule it, but again, not for his sake, but for ours. And so this morning, as we come to a close, what does faithfulness look like for us? We, we mentioned a couple things, and I think the best picture of faithfulness would simply be this. Faithfulness looks like Jesus. That's what it looks like. Not our efforts and trying to do more bad than, or more good than bad to outweigh the scales, but it looks like Jesus who is faithful in our place so that we might experience the redemption of God. Listen, God was always and is always faithful to you in Jesus and he is inviting you to remain in him. And he is always, always giving space for forgiveness even when you don't ask for it or even when you don't seek it. He is there and he is waiting. Not for you to pray a certain amount of times or to give enough money to the church or to read your Bible enough or do enough good things or to give God a month because you did something really bad. He needs to cool off. That he is always waiting to invite you in if you would just be honest with him. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, last thing we'll read, put it on the screens, uh, Peter, who was one of the disciples of Jesus, wrote, to the, wrote this, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold. So you were redeemed not by your efforts or what you can offer, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished, spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, talking about Jesus, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So that your faith and hope is not in yourself or in your effort. See, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to be faithful for us, that Jesus always said no to the temptation of the serpent for us. And he goes to the cross as the final atoning sacrifice for all that would trust in him, that he took the sin and the wrath of God that we deserve. And he raised again three days later to overcome sin and death, to invite us in. The invitation is not to hide when we fall short and not to pretend like we never screwed up. The invitation is to go to this God who desires to give us grace, who desires to give us mercy, no matter what we would do, no matter how we, we fall, might way fall short. Listen, faithfulness looks like Jesus who stood in our place. And for those of us that are followers of Jesus, we desire to emulate him, not to earn something from him, but in response to the goodness of what he has given to us in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And so I just like to say it this, and maybe, maybe you're following, as you go through times in your life, you're trying to be faithful. Maybe you don't know. Maybe you don't know what to do. Here's a question I always like to ask myself when I'm in these situations. Oh, to the best of my knowledge and ability, what would Jesus do if he were me? Or what would he might advise me to do? And listen, even if you get the answer to that wrong, the fact that you sought the Lord is what ultimately matters. Faithfulness is turning to Jesus, is following Jesus, is submitting to Jesus, and is accepting his sacrifice on our behalf.